Good morning. Well, as Becky mentioned earlier, today we're going to be ta- we are going to be talking about discipleship. In, in, in a few moments, we will turn to Matthew chapter twenty-eight, um, verses sixteen through twenty. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through twenty. But before we get there, we're going to answer the question first, what is a disciple? We're talking about discipleship, and as we've been going through, we're going through this series uh, where we're looking at the vision of this church, where we're going as we're building our new Bethel. We've laid the foundation, and now we're beginning to look at the structure, laid the foundation of the gospel, biblical authority, submission to God. Last week we talked about the first element of the structure, which is worship, how we should worship God, and that should motivate uh, all that we do. We should be motivated by worshiping Him. Today we're looking at the idea of discipleship. So what is a disciple? What does that mean? I think often when we think about discipleship or being a disciple, we think of the 12 disciples, right? The, the 12 men that Jesus chose to follow Him. They said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and they were the disciples, So we think of the disciples. But we also see that we are called to be disciples of Christ. We are called to be disciples and to follow Him. So what is a disciple? Uh, The Greek word that is translated as disciple is methetes. It, It means, the definition of it is a pupil, an apprentice, or a student. A pupil, apprentice, or a student. So when we think about that, we think about the idea of being a student. What does it mean to be a student? Well, you go to school and you learn, right? That's how we do schooling. That's how we do learning. But at this time, when people were learning something, the idea of kind of apprenticeship or or, or following a person that could teach you how to do what you needed to do was very prevalent. So Jesus was not the only one with disciples. This was not an exclusive idea that Jesus had his disciples that followed him. If if you look through the Gospels, if you pay attention while you're reading, you'll notice that when John the Baptist, when his time was kind of coming to an end, that mentions that John's disciples interacted with Jesus' disciples, and they both had disciples, people who followed them, who looked to their teaching, who wanted to learn what they were about. Some of the Pharisees, they they were rabbis, and they even had disciples, people who followed them, so that one day they would be like their teacher and would become a teacher themselves. In the same way we think about being a student here, if you want to go to any sort of profession, you start in kindergarten and you work your way through elementary school, middle school, high school, and then you maybe go to college. But eventually, this process ends. But there's one major difference with discipleship. Discipleship is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. But just like any process that we start, it has a beginning. We have to remember that. There's a beginning. If you want to start learning something, if you want to become an apprentice, you want to become a student of something, you don't just start mastering it. And that's why um, I I did bring some baseballs up here this morning. And when I was walking in here, I had someone stop me and ask me what they were for. um, And and they were wondering if I was going to be throwing at the people that fell asleep today. I will not be, but I am watching you, and I do see, okay? But, but something I can do is, is I can juggle, right? So uh, when I was younger, my dad was a PE teacher, and we had a, a jump rope team that traveled, um, and basically I learned how to be a clown. I can juggle. Uh, I can ride a unicycle. All, all those, I'll bring that out in a different sermon. But, um, 
I learned to juggle. But when you learn to juggle, you don't just start juggling chainsaws, right? You have to start somewhere. You start toss and catch. You got toss and catch, right? And then eventually you learn to add a second one. You toss, toss, catch, catch. That's what, that's what we learn to do. And eventually it becomes a cycle where you don't ever stop. You just keep tossing and you keep catching. But like discipleship is a lifelong process, if you stop learning and you stop attempting to learn how to do something like juggle or, or working on a skill, you won't be able to have it or grow any further with it. I never learned how to juggle any more than three because I stopped trying. I stopped learning. There's many careers and professions where you have to take continuing education because things change, right? You don't want a doctor who became a doctor 45 years ago treating you today with absolutely no knowledge of anything that has changed in the time since, right? You want someone that's up to date, that learns. Discipleship is a lifelong process. Listen to this quote by R.C. Sproul. The pursuit of God is not a part-time weekend exercise. If it is, chances are you will experience a part-time weekend freedom. Abiding requires a kind of staying power. The pursuit is relentless. It hungers and thirsts. It pants as the deer after the mountain brook. It takes the kingdom by storm. The pursuit of God is a pursuit of passion. Indifference will not do. To abide in the word is to hang on tenaciously. A weak grip will soon slip away. Discipleship requires staying power. We sign up for the duration. We do not graduate until heaven. Being a disciple is a very simple thing, but it is not an easy thing. Being a disciple is very simple, and we're going to get into what it means to be a disciple, what it looks like to follow Jesus, but it is not easy. There's a lot of things you'll do in life that are pretty easy once you understand them, but they're complicated. There's a big barrier to entry. This is not what following Jesus is like. It's very simple. A child can understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. But living it out, committing to it for your life is the difficult part. So now, if you will, we're going to turn to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Many of you may have mentioned it or noticed as we got to it that this is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The 11, 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this ability that we have to gather here today. I thank you for your word that you've given us this time that we can gather together to just examine what you've said to us, Lord, just in, in your word and in, in Scripture, God, I pray that we would see clearly what it means to follow you today, to be a disciple. And God, I pray that when we examine it and we, we realize just what it means, that we won't shy away from it, we won't walk away from it, Lord, but we will commit to following you with our lives, to being a disciple who walks 
with you. I pray that today we would be obedient to you and and seek to follow you with all that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when we look at this passage, there there are several things we see, and as we look to the rest of Scripture, it, it helps inform us, but the first thing we see is that being a disciple means following Jesus. In this passage, we see that the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. So Jesus told them to go somewhere, and what did they do? They went. They followed Jesus' instructions. And we see that Jesus says at the very beginning of this statement, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. There is none higher than Christ in in authority in our lives, in this world and in the next world. We should submit and follow Him. When we think about having authority, you want to align yourself with the greatest authority, the the greatest good authority in particular, and Jesus is the greatest good authority. We should follow Jesus. It means having a relationship with Him. right? When we, we look at this idea of encountering Jesus, all of the disciples, all 11 of them, encountered Jesus at some point in their life. And they all have one thing in common. They decided to follow Jesus. We look at Mark 1.17 where he calls some of the first disciples. They were on a boat and he, and he says to them, follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. And after that it says that they left their nets and followed Jesus. The first thing that has to happen to be a disciple is that you must follow Jesus. This means, very importantly, that you cannot remain where you are. When you follow Jesus, you will not remain where you are. They were on a boat, fishing, going about their lives, and they encountered Jesus. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Follow me, and I will show you something that's greater than what you're currently doing. And so what do they do? They did not say, that sounds good, and keep fishing. They did not say, okay. And stay where they were. They left their nets and followed Jesus. We see very many examples of encounters with Jesus where people wanted to follow him, but. Jesus, I want to follow you, but. First, I've got to take care of some things. Jesus, I'll follow you, but first I have to bury my father. I want to follow you, but I have a lot of wealth that I don't want to give up. And in these situations where there was something that got in the way, something that was holding these people back from following, when, they, when their commitment to follow him was, was on their terms and not on, on Christ's terms, he gives them a very hard answer that, that, that they walked away often. The latter part of that, that the rich young man comes to him, wants to go to heaven, wants to know how he can get there. He says, follow the commandments. He says, I've done all this since I was a child. One thing you lack, sell all that you have Give to the poor and follow me. What could the rich young ruler not do? He could not leave where he was. He could not leave his comfort and do what he was told to do to follow Jesus. The first thing we must do is follow Jesus. So what does it look like in our lives to follow Jesus? We're in a different situation. We don't have 
Jesus walking with us today. We don't have that advantage to know that this is the Messiah and, and He's telling us to follow and walk with Him as the disciples had. But we have a lot of information that we have when it comes to following Jesus. It's a call to lay our life down where it's at, turn from our sin to follow Christ, to turn from the sinful life that we have been living, repent of it, and follow Jesus. To accept the free gift of salvation that that Jesus has made a way for, to be reconciled to God, to be a new creation, but then to follow Him with the rest of our lives. And that's the second thing that we see. Being a disciple means that we must count the cost. Being a disciple means counting the cost. You see, all of the, the men that are here, they had a time where they had to count the cost in their life to follow Jesus. For, for the men that we mentioned earlier, they had to count whether a, a life of, of following what they, they knew that provided for them, that provided for their families potentially, to follow Jesus, they laid it aside. They said, following you is greater than what I've been doing. If we want to follow Jesus, we must consider what it means to follow. All of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus himself tells us this in Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds were were traveling with him. Now notice that. Great crowds are traveling with him. They're not following him. There was only a handful that were following him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to count the cost? What does it mean to look at, at what exactly is fo- it, it, it costs to follow Jesus? And why do so many not count the cost? I guarantee that, I can, that every person in this room can think of at least one person they know that at one point followed Christ but now claims nothing to do with Him. And for most of you, that's probably much more than one person. When I was younger, I remember that we, we had our, our youth group and there was, it grew, it exploded. God was doing amazing things. In our, our small little town, we had over 100 people coming to youth group on Wednesday nights. Many people made professions of faith. They were baptized. And now there's many of those people that I sat with in church that have nothing to do with their faith. They don't claim to know Christ. They don't claim to follow Him. And then there's a number past that that would maybe wear the name tag of Christian, but nothing in their life indicates they're following Him. 
other than that name tag. Hi, I'm a Christian, and, and, and that's all that I really have to do with it. Only a very small hand few, handful still even attend church. So why does this happen? Right, we remember the parable of the sower where, where the seed is scattered and, and there's some that falls on barren soil and there's some that falls on soil where it grows up quickly but then dies out quickly and then some that, that grows up but then when persecution and the thorns come, it falls away and then there's the fertile soil. Why does this happen? Often, I think the, the reason is because people don't count the cost. And even beyond that at times, there are people and there's times and ways where we don't tell people and share that they must count the cost of following Jesus and understand what it means to follow Him. We want to see disciples of Jesus, people who are, are formed and who know Him and have been saved and, and grow in their faith and persevere to the end. Because that is what we want to see. That is what Jesus calls us to do. Oftentimes when, when Jesus would have these crowds, He would then teach something very difficult. And what do we see happen a lot? And this was a hard thing, and many who followed him once began to turn away. Many of the crowds dispersed because they couldn't handle this teaching. Why do people often turn away? There are, are things that, that have happened within church culture that have, I think, promoted ideas of this. There's a, a phrase that's been used, easy believism. This idea that we... we present Christ as though it's like an insurance policy that you add on to your life. That you just keep living your life the way you want it. If you just will just believe and, and you'll just be baptized, you don't have to change anything. Just raise your hand, go through a couple, a couple steps, and you're good to go. Salvation is very simple. The work has been done. Jesus Christ paid the price. But when we repent and we believe in Christ, we are committing to make Him our Lord and our Savior and are following Him for the rest of our lives. When we share the gospel with people, we must present it in the way where you are surrendering your life to Christ, not buying an insurance policy. Because if, you, if someone comes to faith through that or they're pressured into it, they feel like they have to to please their family members or, or to please the people around them, do you know what happens? If that faith isn't genuine, then that's the real concern here. I'm not talking about people being saved and losing their salvation. I'm not talking about that. If someone has been saved by Christ, they cannot lose their salvation. No one can take what was given to them by God. But if a person is given a gospel that's so watered down and so removed of any cost to believing in Jesus that their faith is not genuine? What happens when hard times come? What happens when it's unpopular to be a Christian? What you'll, you'll see what happens. In our nation, have you seen the numbers of, of Christians, those who claim to be Christians, dwindling? I don't think this has become because people are, are vastly opposed to God. I think it's because there's many people who once claimed to follow Christ because it was easy and popular. And now that there is shifting in culture where it, there are places where it is not popular and not easy, the people who followed Christ only in name have turned away. They've taken that name tag off because it was easier not to have it. 
When we share the gospel, when we call people to follow, we must make sure that they know what that means. It doesn't mean follow Jesus when it's easy. It doesn't mean follow Jesus because He'll give you everything you want. It doesn't mean follow Jesus because your life will be infinitely better right now. It means follow Jesus because He has purchased you by His blood and the sin that you cannot pay for, He has atoned for, and that everything in this world, even your family, even your, 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 your job, no matter what it is, all your possessions cannot compare to the goodness and the love that He has for you. And so we lay everything aside, if we have to, to know Jesus. That's what it means to follow Him. We have to count the cost. Deny yourself. So we talked about it as one of the foundational elements is submission to God. If we're not willing to submit to Him, we're not going to be a very good disciple. If we're not willing to follow Him when He tells us things that we don't like, when there are things in our life that don't line up with Scripture, if we're not willing to submit, we're not being a very good disciple. It's difficult. It doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. Peter was so sure that he would follow Jesus no matter what. Do you know this man? You're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. I don't know him. But when he made the mistake, what did he ultimately do? He repented. He turned back and followed. Because that's what real faith will do is that when you, when you make mistakes, when you don't, when you stray, when you have difficulty, you will follow and come back because you know that it's better than anything else. We must forsake Everything for the chance to follow Jesus if we're called to. I think a big part of the reason why something like a watered-down, easy gospel can exist in a place like where we live is because it is so easy to follow Jesus. Even though the culture has shifted, even though there are people who would look at us and not like us and those who might mock us if you were in the wrong crowds, it's still very easy to be a Christian here. We have next to no persecution. And so, if we are told, follow Jesus, it can be very easy, but there are places in the world where the cost has to be counted immediately because their life depends on it. I want to share some of the most dangerous places to be a Christian. In North Korea... There are 25.2 million people and 300,000 Christians. And in North Korea, like everyone else, Christians in North Korea must worship the nation's leader. And belonging to another religion makes you an enemy of the state. Thousands of Christians are imprisoned, and many have reported being tortured and executed. Believers meet secretly and risk arrest and death by doing so. And so for the person... In North Korea that hears the gospel and they hear follow Jesus, they know the cost. It might mean death. It means forsaking everything, even their own life, to follow Jesus. But that's not the worst. In Somalia, there are 11.2 million people, hundreds of Christians. Not hundreds of thousands, hundreds Islam is the state religion, and converting to another religion is illegal. The Islamist group Al-Shabaab has stated that it wants to rid Somalia of all Christians. 
and people sub- suspected of following the faith, people suspected of following the faith, are likely to be killed on the spot. Many meet in secret or don't meet at all and cannot own Bibles. The reason I'm emphasizing this importance of counting the cost is because Jesus emphasized it. Are we willing? If, if you grew up there, would you still follow Jesus? Would you still say Jesus is worth it? He's worth everything to me. And I want to follow Him. Because He's worth it. Because He loves me. He died for me. And so if, I, if it means that I will die for Him. It's hard. But we have to count the cost. We have to show ourselves willing to follow Christ no matter what. We understand what it means to follow Christ. We must understand the cost. In your life, I know that you don't want a fair-weather friend, a person that's only there when everything's going good. When life's going good and everything's happy, they're always around, but when things get hard, they tend to disappear. You want real, committed, loyal friends. We cannot be fair-weather followers of Christ. And so we must follow Christ. We must count the cost. And being a disciple means becoming like Christ. So all of the disciples that were, were following Jesus, they walked with Him for three years. Every day. Lived life with Him. They saw what He did. They, they saw how He interacted with people. They saw the way that He taught. They heard what He taught. They learned from Him. They were often corrected and rebuked over and over and over again. That's my favorite thing that I've, as I've grown in my faith and I've walked is to see just how much the disciples got wrong in the Gospels. Constantly, Jesus is, is like, do you still not get it? No, that's not right. Let me explain it to you again. I know I've explained it a, a bunch of times already, but let me explain it to you again. Do you know why that, that's encouraging to me? It's because that means he will do the same with us. That when I get it wrong or when you get it wrong as we're going through our life, Jesus bears with us. He will continue to instruct and to love and correct us as we go. But if we want to be a disciple, we must learn to follow and to be instructed by our teacher, right? To, to be a disciple means to be a, a student, apprentice, a follower. There are, there are some professions that still have apprentices in this world, right? There are people who, in an apprenticeship is where you come and you go and you work alongside the person who's already the master, right? And they show you how to do it. They make sure that you get it figured out so that one day you can become the person who will then have their own apprentice. And so Jesus is the person that we are following. We are apprenticing ourselves. We are seeking to be his disciple. We are seeking to, to walk and to learn exactly the way he lived, the way he taught, what he taught. We learn his heart and we learn how he would act. So if we want to learn what he, he, he taught, thank goodness that God in his love and his mercy has given us his word to see what he taught, to see what he expects, and the way that we should live. If we want to learn, if we want to be a disciple, we have to learn it to love the Scripture that God has given us, the Bible that, that will instruct us what it means to follow him, how we should to, to, to learn what he taught, what he expects, what he commands, because it's what he's given us in Scripture. We must learn his heart. We must learn his heart. 
The heart of Jesus is the heart of God. And this is what the Pharisees got so wrong. They knew his commandments, but they missed the heart of God behind his commandments. You all know the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. She's brought, and the law says that they can stone her, but Jesus says, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. They all walk away. And he says, who is your, where's your accuser? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So in this, we see two things. When we encounter a sinner, we love them. Because Jesus loved them. But, and this is where we often pick one side or the other, we love the sinner, but we call them to go and sin no more. It is a hard thing to do because if we are taught to love the sinner, eventually our nature and the way the world works tends to encourage us to accept their sin, to embrace them where they are, to embrace everything about them. But we can't do that because we've learned what Jesus taught. We've learned what he expects, but we have to love them. But on the other side of that, so often we get focused on the commands of God, we lose the ability to, to love the person that's caught in the snares of sin, just as we were. We've got to love them and call them to live in newness of life. Call them to follow Christ, to submit, to repent and be saved. So we learn what he taught, we learn his heart, and we learn how he would act. You know, it became kind of a, a joke almost after a little while, the whole WWJD, what would Jesus do? There was bracelets, it became just so, it was so much everywhere, but it's, the, the meaning behind it is so important. In your life, if you will constantly ask yourself, what would Jesus do and you will do it? You are living your life as Christ would. You are seeking to be an example to others. You're seeking to be submissive and to follow God in your life, to become like Him. So what does it look like to become like Christ? We must correct the areas in our life where we fall short. We must remember that just as we encounter people and we have to implore them to go and sin no more and love them where we're at, we were once there. We were saved from our sin and told to go and sin no more. And that's not a process that we will complete until we reach heaven. Every day that we encounter God, every day we grow to love Him, and that's one of the most true things I've heard. The closer you grow to God, the, the more you know Him, the more you love Him, the more aware of your own sinfulness you become. Your pride, your, your unlovingness, your, your selfishness, these things that no one sees, right? It's easy to look at people and to see the sin that's in their life that's apparent and open for everyone to see and to call that out. The more you become in relationship with God, the more you grow to know Him, the more you realize the depths of, which, of what God saved you from. Because if you have a, a very dark room and a very small flashlight... You're only going to see a little bit. But the more you allow the light of God to enter your life, the more you find every nook and cranny that God has to redeem in your life. Every single thing, every unloving attitude, every way where you didn't speak lovingly, every way you didn't reflect Christ in your life. And discipleship means you allow God to transform you and to mold you 
and become like Him. We see in Ephesians 4, 20-32, after Paul talks about not walking in these ways any longer, we can't walk like the Gentiles walk, he said, and then we pick up in verse 20, but that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness. Do you understand as Christians, our likeness should be like God's. We should put on the new self created according to God's likeness. We are constantly seeking to live in everything we do, in a way that is pleasing to God, in righteousness and in purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands, so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you. We must look at every area of our life and see if we think and act, if the way we think and act is in line with the way Christ would have us to live. And I mentioned earlier that following Jesus is very simple, but it's very hard. In, in the most simple way to put it, Jesus said that the two greatest commandments, love God and love others. If you will make it your life's goal to do that, you will look and live like Jesus lived. But it's very hard to do. Because you're going to deal with people that are going to make it very hard to love them. And you're going to find times where in your own life that you have a very hard time submitting to God rather than doing what you want to do. It's hard to do. But it's simple. Love God and love others. And the last thing we see from this passage. So often this passage is associated with evangelism and missions and, and sharing the gospel with the entirety of the world. And it definitely means that we should do that. But being a disciple, part of discipleship, means making disciples. These disciples are called to go and replicate themselves. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And in the in Another place we see, Acts 1.8, after they've received, after he is ascending to heaven, after, as they're preparing to receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What we see from discipleship and what we see from this idea that we see in the Great Commission is that it's a reproducible process. Jesus selected men to follow him. They walked with him. They lived life with him. He taught them. And then after he has done what he came to do, after he died on the cross, rose to life, is ascending to heaven, he tells them, go, make disciples, make people who follow 
me through how they follow you. Teach them what I taught you. Reproduce yourself into more disciples. Make more disciples. Teach people to follow Jesus. You see, being a disciple, following Jesus, does not end at salvation. That's the very beginning of our walk with God. When you realize your sin and you you say, I want to follow Jesus and you believe in Him, and you're baptized, and you're following Him, that's not the end. It's the very beginning of your journey following God, of being a disciple. And your role in making disciples should start immediately after you are saved. After you come to Christ, you should immediately start doing everything you can to help make more disciples. You don't have to wait to be qualified. People should begin to serve immediately in proportion to their ability and gifting. Now, let's make sure we understand that. That doesn't mean that someone immediately gets saved and they're going to begin to do, teach every Sunday school class and, and preach on Sunday mornings. But we don't wait years and years and years for them to be able to do anything in the church. Because I don't know about you in your life, but I remember when I was first saved and when I was first called to ministry, that was the most excited to, to serve God I've ever been in my life. And there's times where you get refreshed and renewed, but one of the most excited times you have is when you are first giving your life to God. You're saying, I submit to you, I want to follow you, now what do I do? And too often the answer is, wait a little bit, go sit in a class. Once you've learned a little more about you know, 10 years from now, maybe you can then sit in a different seat and you will teach the class. That, I don't think, is, is what we are called to do. Discipleship should be very hands-on. We should be called to, to make disciples immediately. So what does it look like to make disciples? And, and as I mentioned before, this is often used with evangelism and missions, and we will get to that. We should share the gospel. But there will be a whole sermon in the future about the idea of evangelism and missions. So we share the gospel. We have to proclaim and teach and share the good news of what Jesus has done with us. But then we have to learn enough to be able to lead others. Discipleship means that we are to be students. We are to learn to grow in our faith so that we can lead others. We must become disciples ourselves if we're going to make disciples. This could mean teaching, it could mean mentoring, it could be leading by example. And that's what I think people often misunderstand. They they think this idea of discipleship, of making disciples, only applies if you have the gifting or or the the confidence or the calling to be in a role where you're teaching or, 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 or up front in front of other people. Making disciples is so much more than being a Sunday school teacher, than being a pastor, than being a person who feels comfortable leading and teaching in front of other people. So much of what Jesus did with the disciples was how he interacted with them in his daily life. So you could teach. If you can learn enough and get to a place where you can share the truth of Scripture with other people, you should do that. Whether or not you you thought that's what you would do, if you can do it, you should try to. And maybe that doesn't mean in a large group. Maybe it means in one-on-one encounters. Maybe that means that the people that you bring alongside you, maybe somebody comes alongside you and and helps you with something, you can share and teach them things. That can mean mentoring. If you are a person that's lived through life, you have experience, right? 
You have experiences. You've, you've seen how hard some things can be. You've seen how easy some things can be. You've seen the wrong way to do things. You've seen the right way to do things. You've seen what happens when you're disobedient to God, what happens when, when you're obedient to Him. And if you will take those experiences and invest in people who are either younger than you or younger than you in Christ, you can make disciples. I'll tell you, one of the, the most difficult things that, that Jade and I have had to experience is when we had a miscarriage in, early in our, our marriage before we had Eliza. You don't know how many people loved us through that. So many people came and said, hey, we've been through a similar thing. And in using their experiences, they shaped and they loved us and informed us. And, and in a way, they're making disciples. They're helping a brother and a sister in Christ to grow through that. And so, so when you find someone that's going through a difficult time, particularly when you can instruct them in, in how God would have them to handle it, right? When you hear somebody like, man, I've had a really hard time at work, and, and, and these people are, are doing this, how can you teach that person to love like Christ would? How can you teach those people to grow in their faith? And so we teach, we mentor, we take people under our wing, we show them how to follow God, how to follow Christ. We lead by example. We do the things in our lives that we should do. One of the most profound things in my life that my youth pastor ever did was not, all of, not just all of the lessons and the sermons and the times where he would one-on-one -on -one teach me and mentor me, but it was when we were driving down the road and, and we saw a car that was in the middle that was stuck with our flashers on. Without a thought, he pulled over, we got out, we pushed him to the gas station. Because Jesus calls us to love people. Seeing that attitude, seeing God's love in him through that was so formational to me. It didn't require me to be a, him to be a biblical scholar to do that. It didn't require him to know how to teach and be comfortable in front of people. But seeing him put God's love in action was influential in my life. We are called to make disciples, to love each other, to help each other grow in our faith. So the questions that, that you need to ask today, the questions you must answer, is are you engaged in discipleship? Are you following Christ? Have you made that decision? Have you made the decision to follow Him? Have you realized your sinfulness, your need for a Savior, believed in what Jesus has done for you, repented and followed, followed up in baptism, in obedience to Him? Have you counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ? That everything in your life is less than the goodness of knowing who God is, being able to follow Him. Are you actively seeking to be his student, to learn from God, to learn how to be a better follower of Christ? Are you seeking that in your life? Are you seeking to look more like him? Has your life changed since you came to know him? Has your life changed since you came to know him? Because it should. It should look dramatically different. And then the last question, are you making disciples? Are you engaged in some level on trying to help other people grow closer to God? Other people to follow Him, to know Him more. Because if we don't do that part, it ends.
Because if, if people aren't discipled, how are they going to know how to make disciples? We see that over and over again in Israel's history. And then a generation arose that didn't know the Lord. Why didn't they know the Lord? Most likely because they weren't taught. Because the people did not obey the commandment to entrust these things to your children. Entrust these things to those who come after you so they will know the Lord. We must make disciples. Whether they're your children, you, we must disciple our own children. But everyone else we have influence in their lives with. To disciple them, to love them, to help them know Christ. So as Becky comes and we have this time of invitation, I want to challenge you to invite you to reflect on those questions. And during this time, the altar will be open for, to pray. If you need to, to repent of something in your life, if you realize there's a way that you need to follow Him more closely, a way you need to be engaged in discipling others, or maybe today you, you have never made that decision to follow Him in your life. Maybe you want to find a way to follow Him more obediently, to follow up in baptism for the first time. To, to commit to finding what that next step is in following Him. Whatever that may be, I'll be down front if you need to pray, if you need prayer, or if you need to ask Him to, to save you for the first time today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank You for this day that You've given us, this time we can gather together and worship You, and to look at what it means to follow You. And God, I pray that Today would be a day that we would all commit to being followers of you, no matter what it takes, no matter what you call us to, that we would be obedient. And God, that you would just bless our efforts to be obedient to you, that you would help us to see people become committed disciples, that each of us would become more committed than we've ever been, that people would come to know you through that that lost people would be saved and become committed followers of you, and Lord, that, that you, your gospel would just explode here in Evansville and in the world. I pray that wherever each of us are today, Lord, you would convict us how to follow you more closely. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.